Welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 45, where we go back Back to the the past past. and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on Chris and Reggie at podbean.com. Actually, .podbean.com, not at podbean.com. And you can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and by the howl of the creatures of the night. This is our special Halloween episode. Are we a little early on that one, Chris? I think so. (laughs) Either that or late. Maybe late, late. yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, today we're going to be discussing a very special issue suggested to us by Eric Shea of the Weird Science DC Comics.com podcast, which might mean he'll have to listen to this one. Possibly. No guarantees, but he'll he'll say we did good work regardless. I'm happy. It's a, it's a check plus. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now we are going to be discussing Superman Volume 2, Number 70, cover date August 1992. Story and art by Dan Jurgens, finished art by Brett Breeding, uh, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Glenn Whitmore, assistant editor Dan Thorsland, editor Mike Collin, cover price $1.25 USD. Yeah, cheap. No big deal. So, uh, sure. I th- three. Thankfully, you know, in a sense, this week we only have to do one creator bio since Dan Jurgens did the story and art but of course you had to pick a guy as accomplished and you know who has worked as prolific, yeah. uh, prolific as uh, Dan Jurgens uh, but you know we'll, we'll do the best we can as we always do so Dan Jurgens was born June 27th 1959 in Ortonville Minnesota first comic book Dan bought with his own money was Superman number 189 August 1966 went to the store looking for a Batman comic but they were out uh, this, of course, he says, of course, that was in the midst of the Batman TV craze and wonderful DC go-go checks era. So Batman was a hot commodity for a while there. Uh, he graduated from the Minneapolis College of Art and Design in 1981, and his first professional work was for DC Comics, penciling The Warlord, number 63, that was covered date November 1982. He was hired due to a recommendation of Warlord creator Mike Grell, who was impressed by Jurgens' work after being shown his portfolio at a convention. In 1984, Jurgens was the artist for the Sun Devils maxi-series, that was July 1984 to June 1985, cover date, with writers Jerry Conway and Roy Thomas. He began scripting from Conway's plots with number 8, that was February 1985, cover date, and fully took over the writing duties on the title with number 10, April 1985, cover. Yeah, also in 1985, Jurgens would create uh, Booster Gold. First appeared in Booster Gold number one, February 1986, cover date. His first work on the character we're going to discuss, discuss today was uh, as penciler for Adventures of Superman, annual number one. This was the 1987 annual. Uh, in 1988, Jurgens provided pencil art for the Dead Man short stories, which were written by Mike Barron in the uh, short-lived anthology. This is when Action Comics went weekly and mm-hmm. changed to Action Comics Weekly for almost a year. And he uh, did the art for Dead Man for issues 601 through 612. Uh, he had a short. He had a run on as an artist at Green Arrow with uh, Grell from 1988 to 1990. 
1989, he began working full-time on the Superman character. He took over writing and penciling of the monthly Adventures of Superman series. Uh, Jurgens was the penciler of the 1991 limited series Armageddon 2000 and one, mm -hmm. and uh, co-created the hero Wave Rider, who we discussed at great length during mm -hmm. our Zero Hour episode That's right. with Archie Goodwin. Uh, Jurgens helped writer Louise Simonson and artist John Bogdanov launch, launch the new Superman title, This is Superman the Man of Steel, in July 1991. Uh, Dan would assume the writing and penciling uh, duties of the main Superman comic, the adjectiveless and just Superman comic, <laughs> uh, with issue 57. That's uh, cover date July 1991. Uh, his supporting cast was uh, full of characters he created, such as uh, Agent Liberty. Uh, he came in, in issue number 60, this is October 1991, and brings us right up to where we want to be. Yeah, pretty neatly up to this, you know, and he definitely is considered a defining Superman writer, uh, but we'll get into oh, more of that. Oh, definitely mine, yep. <laughs> yeah, well, sure, well, that was in your time, but, you know, he, he was on there a long time, and uh, we'll, we'll talk more about his... Exploits after we, after we get through this issue, but first we want to talk about the character in the issue, the uh, Superman, a fellow I'm sure a few people that listen to the podcast know this guy, but they may not know about the very first Superman, and uh, this was really a concept, the Ubermensch, this is German for Overman or Superman, it's a concept in the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche. In his 1883 book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, Nietzsche has his cara Z Zarathustra, Posit the Ubermensch as a goal for humanity to set for itself. That's nice. Yeah, why not? Yeah. <laughs> uh, we also have uh, we have some uh, perhaps inspiration here. This is uh, in 1930, a novel featuring the char a character with several of the super attributes Superman would display was published. This book was called The Gladiator. It was written by Philip Wiley. Uh, in it, a scientist gives a serum consisting of a quote new plasm to biology. To his, to his still unborn son. Uh, the son is Hugo Danner. He is born with powers far beyond those of mortal men. Uh, super strength and vulnerability, all that stuff. Uh, a quote from the book has Hugo saying, I can do things, Dad. It kind of scares me. I can jump higher in a house and run faster than a train. And uh, I can do something, something related to speeding bullets, too. I don't know. Maybe. Don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> he, would, uh, he would later say that uh, he is like a man made of iron. Uh, now, during... Uh, during this, uh, from all accounts, horrible novel, uh, Hugo keeps his powers secret. Yeah, so we'll just put, we'll table that. It seems like a similarity, but we do know for sure that Cleveland, Ohio-based science fiction fans Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster created a fanzine called Science Fiction, The Advanced Guard of Future Civilization in 1933. Rolls right uh, off your thumb. I know, really. <laughs> people, people in the know just called it science fiction. Uh, in 1983, Siegel, in a reminiscing, he said, uh, I wrote some science fiction stories and submitted them to Amazing Stories and Science Wonder Stories. They were rejected. Refusing to accept defeat, I went into the fanzine business, mainly to get those rejected stories seen by readers. My first fanzine was entitled Cosmic Stories. It was typewritten. Later, with Joe Schuster as art editor and with myself as editor, I published the fanzine Science Fiction. It was published on the mimeograph machine of Glenville High School, where I was a reluctant student, quote-unquote, on student. Uh, 
Yes. Uh, in this publication, of which there were only five issues produced, uh, there's a story called The Reign of the Superman, penned by Siegel and drawn by Schuster. Uh, this is an illustrated story, so it's not sequential art. It's right. not a comic book story. Uh, in it, a mad scientist named Professor Ernest Smalley randomly recruits vagrant Bill Dunn from, the, from a breadline to participate in an experiment in exchange for a real meal and a new suit. That's pretty much my going rate. Right. Uh, when, when Smalley's experimental potion grants Dunn telepathic powers, the man becomes intoxicated by this power and seeks to rule the entire world. Eventually, the power wears off, and Dunn is back on the breadline. Dunn, the Superman, is bald and uh, pretty much he's, he's more reminiscent of uh, Lex Luthor than, than yeah, Superman. There, there are scenes where he looks almost exactly like the way Schuster would draw Lex Luthor later on. Although yeah, to, absolutely. To be fair, Schuster only had about six faces he could draw, so you can't really, <laughs> can't really blame him too much. <laughs> Sorry about that, Mr. Mr. Schuster's family, but it's true. Uh, I, do, I do find it really interesting, though, that this, this guy has pulled off the breadline. It's such a contextual thing. This would not exist... This today, way, no. That's an origin that would make no sense today or even like 10 years after this story came out. That, sure. But uh, anyway, that's just, I find that uh, always fascinating. Yeah, it's all uh, Depression-era stuff here. Um, now, in 1983, Siegel would say, in the January 1933 issue of Science Fiction appeared a story I had written in 1932 entitled The Reign of the Superman. I used the pseudonym Herbert S. Fine, which combined the name of a cousin of mine together with my mother's maiden name. After the publication of The Reign of the Superman, it occurred to me that a different version of Superman could be the basis of an extremely powerful and successful comic book. So, And so I originated, together with Joe Schuster, the comic book The Superman back in 1933. Mm, that lays the he, groundwork. He, he just wants that on the record, I think. Yeah, just so you know, 1933 <laughs> was the year, folks, it's preceding a lot of other uh, people in, in Long John's. Anyway... Uh, so Siegel and Schuster redeveloped their Superman idea so the character was a hero instead of a villain. They initially tried pitching it as a comic strip to several newspapers, but they were unsuccessful. Again, in the same 1983 interview, Siegel said, A Chicago publisher was interested, but he did not follow through and publish the Superman. Brokenhearted, Joe tore up and burned all the original drawings, pages, oh, wow. except its cover. Joe was terribly discouraged. He got a part-time job as a grocery store's delivery boy, another job carrying a heavy box and selling ice cream bars on the streets. Uh, Siegel sent it to National Comics, which we know today as DC Comics in New York, where it languished in a drawer. Uh, Sheldon Mayer, who, you know, he's the guy that drew Scribbly and uh, later Sugar, Sugar and Spike, and, Spike. Um, yeah. and he worked in worked for DC for decades and decades. Uh, he credits himself with getting, to the getting the first Superman story published, working in National as a production person at the time. He said he saw Siegel and Schuster's pages and suggested they would sell, they would be popular. But this story is ap apocryphal and has never been confirmed by anyone besides Shelley Mayer, so take that. I've also heard, by the way, Eisner once credited him himself with getting Superman published, so... Uh, every, I, I think anyone who was standing around <laughs> at the time could, took a little credit for that one. And if you see, like, a little bit of mold on a bread, you just say, hey, penicillin. There you go. <laughs> I found it, not you. Uh, now, when National had difficulty deciding on an appropriate cover for a new magazine called Action Comics, someone, maybe Meyer, pulled out the Superman proposal, showing him lifting a car with his hands. Harry Donenfeld alleg allegedly called it ridiculous, but still decided to put it on the cover. <laughs> 
Nothing better came along. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote he wrote Siegel and Schuster and asked them if they could put together a 13-page story for Action Comics 1. Siegel and Schuster hurried, hurriedly cut and pasted their newspaper strip into comic book form and sent it off. And that spring, Action Comics number one hit the stands with a cover date of June 1938. It wouldn't be an immediate hit, but by Action Comics 4, it was selling like gangbusters. Astounded by this, Donenfeld is reported to have gone down to his local newsstand and asked a kid... Why are you reading this one? Pointing to Action Comics. And he says, the kid says, because it's the one that has Superman in it, mister. Wow. You know, they're definitely taking everything by storm. And we know that it changed comics and, you know, American and then world culture forever after that. Sure. Going back to Wiley, that guy that uh, wrote that book, Gladiator, we mentioned from 1930. Upon seeing Superman, he threatened Siegel with a lawsuit. This would have been around 1940 uh, on the grounds of plagiarism. However, it was never filed. Uh, the Ubermensch concept was really too common a reference point for Wiley just to discount. They both had kind of taken from the same origin, so uh, and Nietzsche wasn't there to be sued at the time, so there it was. <laughs> uh, Siegel claimed to have never read Gladiator until Wiley threatened with the lawsuit. However, hmm. per, per Gerard Jones' book, Men of Tomorrow, Siegel had apparently written a capsule review of Wiley's novel in a fanzine years before Superman made his debut. Huh. <laughs> Jones would say pretty much everybody agrees that he, meaning Siegel, must have read it. Uh, Hugo Danner, uh, this is uh, the, the, the character, like we said, him, he would himself appear in a DC comic. <laughs> uh, Young All-Stars number 10 is March 1988 cover price, or cover date, <laughs> marks his first appearance. Um, he would be revealed as the father for Arn Iron Monroe, who would be the post-crisis replacement for Superman during the Golden Age. Um, he was written and, quote, created by Roy and Dan Thomas, who, as we know, love their literary Easter egg. I mean, who else could do it, really? No one, <laughs> no one else would dig, would dig this one out, but there it is. Now, and uh, the uh, cover for Young All-Stars number one, this is June 1987, even has Iron Monroe in the familiar Superman breaking chains pose, like the the Kryptonite Nevermore pose. Mm -hmm. Um, Worth mentioning, because who knows if we ever will get to this again, uh, Marvel Comics published an adaptation of Gladiator in Marvel Preview number six, this is winter 1976, written by... Hey, Roy Thomas. Well, there it is. Someone someone <laughs> holding the torch for Gladiator, and thank goodness he's doing it because he gets to dig up great stuff like that. Absolutely. Uh, Siegel and Schuster, though, they would sell the rights to national periodicals for $130 in a contract to supply the publisher with material. They worked on the comic books for a short time, quickly jumping to a Superman comic strip that debuted on January 16, 1939. So it went from couldn't sell it to, you know, probably couldn't sell it fast enough. Uh, Though Schuster would farm his duties out to assistants by 1940, and this comic lasted until 1966. So they made a good, good go of it. Now we're going to talk about talk about the history. This is the real Superman. This is the guy that we we know who Superman is. You know, we all know about him. Muscular dude in a skin-tight costume of blue, yellow, and red. Faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, and can leap higher than the tallest buildings. Uh, in reality, though, Superman's origin and specs, they kind of manifested and changed over time. He didn't show up on that in that first issue of Action Comics with his whole origin laid out and all the particulars intact. Uh, and and his origin and his attributes have been informed by back then by stuff from the comic strip radio show, which started in 1940, movie serial, which started in 1948, and eventually the television show, which started in 1952. I believe Kryptonite comes from the... 
radio uh, radio show, right? And, yeah. and a lot of these side characters, uh, they, they all kind of had a hand in uh, the building of Superman. And not to mention that, by the way, during the Silver Age, Superman would often <laughs> manifest a power in one issue and then not have it in the next issue, right, right when he could really use it. And also, <laughs> just like with any character in, in comics, different creators have represented his strength and power set differently. But that in mind, Chris, why don't we tell them the pre-Crisis on Infinite Earth story of Superman? Certainly. Uh, baby Kal-El is sent by parents Jor-El and Lara uh, from their dying planet Krypton in an experimental rocket destined for the planet Earth. It reached a farm in Kansas while Kal-El was still a baby and was found by the childish, childless couple, John and Martha Kent. Uh, they might be childish, too. Who knows? Yeah, they were young. They were young then. <laughs> yes. Uh, Martha decides to name the baby Clock, which is her maiden name. After a brief and, and hilarious stint in the orphanage... <laughs> Where baby Kal-El displays tremendous strength and power. He picks up his own crib, if I remember. Right? Yep. He's like a baby holding a chair or something. It's crazy. <laughs> after, after those scenes here, the Kents adopt Kal-El formally and raise him as their own. Yeah, that was something you could do back then. Sure. Uh, Just leave it on the porch and come sure. back three days later. Oh, this is our kid now. That's fine. <laughs> so uh, Kal-El Clark grows up as Superboy, a young man with the same power set as Superman, which are flight... Super speed and vulnerability with two exceptions, which we'll talk about in a minute. X-ray vision, which can double as heat vision, uh, super intelligence, and super senses. After graduating Metropolis University, where he played football, Kal-El Clark moves to Metropolis City and gets a job as Clark Kent, reporting for newspaper The Daily Planet. He loves co-worker Lois Lane. She only has eyes for Superman. Superman treats her like a dingus. That's sort of their relationship for, like... 50 years, right? Would you say yeah, so? Yeah, about that. More or less. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Superman's X-ray vision cannot penetrate lead, and he's invulnerable. He's vulnerable to two things: magic and a radioactive meteorite resulting from its exploded home planet named Kryptonite. And in the pre-crisis crisis world, there were several types of kryptonite, each with their own properties. There was like the red kryptonite could like make him do anything wacky for 24 hours, right? Yep. The, Gold kryptonite removed his powers permanently. Permanently. Were, and I mean, there there were many. There may have been a dozen or more types of kryptonite over the and years. there was white that only worked on plant life for some right, reason. Right, right. I mean, it, it got weird. It got really weird. <laughs> now, uh, we just talked about pre-crisis. Let's go into post-crisis here. After Crisis on Infinite Earths in 1985, Superman was given a reboot of sorts, helmed by John Byrne. Uh, th this is the uh, Superman we'll be seeing today in right. the issue we're going to be discussing. Uh, here we have it where Kal-El is rocketed from uh, exploding Krypton to Earth, but he's the only one. There's no Crypto, there's no Supergirl, there isn't a legion of Kryptonians right. in his wake. Um, he, worth mentioning, he also arrives in a birthing matrix rather than being a baby, uh, making the argument that he might have been born on Earth. Mm, that's true. But he also came, he also arrived like knowledgeable about Krypton too, right? He was like taught in the rocket. I don't think that was a Yeah, he was he was filled thing. in on his own origin. Right. Which it, which was later, you know, revealed to be well we were getting ahead of us. Yeah, we don't want to get to <laughs> uh, also Krypton's much more a science oriented planet despite their refusal of Jorel's warnings about the fate of Krypton. They still <laughs> worship science. More sterilizing, more like the Superman movie from seventy eight, uh that's what Krypton Kind of starts to look like a bunch of spires and stuff coming from whatever. Uh, Kal-El still lands in Kansas. He's still picked up by John and Martha Kent. 
but instead of him just being, you know, fully powered as Superboy, his powers manifest over time, beginning at puberty, so there never is a Superboy. Uh, he only becomes Superman as an adult. He can fly, he has X-ray vision and super sense, but he's not invulnerable. Uh, he's still really strong. You know, I, I make that clear. He can probably still take like a tank blast, but they but they've come up with other villains for him to fight that can knock him about and. Uh, Really hurt him, and in fact, later, you know, not long after this issue, he's killed in a slobber knocker with Doomsday. Uh, but that is a story for another day, and one we kind of already told before on uh, the Cosmic Treadmill. <laughs> so, for another example of his lessons powers, at one point, Superman exiled himself into space, and during this time, he required a breathing apparatus to survive outside of Earth's atmosphere, which was not the case before that. So, yeah, he's he was depowered somewhat. Mm -hmm. uh, he loves Lois Lane, and when Clark reveals he's Superman, she loves him too. That's all you have to do. <laughs> Duh, that was so obvious. Eventually, they marry. Uh, he's also vulnerable to the magic of crypt to magic and kryptonite, but there's only green kryptonite, and all the other color kryptonites are gone. And all that being said, it would strange dra drastically over the years. Pocket universes were created, right? Like, yep. retcons were retconned, and you know, change imaginary stories became real. Uh, so don't commit any any of what we said to memory. But essentially, what we've laid out is the character we'll be reading about today. Yes, up to the point here. Uh, now we do uh, have to go into the lead-in issue here. This is Superman: The Man of Steel, number fourteen, also August nineteen ninety-two cover date, written by Louise Simonson with art by John Bogdanov. T title of the issue is Night Moves. Now, this was coming out during the triangle numbering era for Superman comics. We had four titles coming out every month that formed a, co a cohesive weekly story. We had Superman, we had Action Comics, Adventures of Superman, and uh, the one that we're discussing now, Man of Steel. Uh, in it, Robin shows up in Metropolis. Robin, Batman's, uh, you know, partner. Right. Uh, after hearing about a plague that seems to have begun claiming lives, uh, thereafter a similar string of deaths stopped in Gotham City. Robin is very upfront about it being caused by a vampire. And uh, wouldn't you know it, a vampire shows up outside Lucy Lane's second floor window in the guise of a uh, rather 90s-styled uh, mulleted <laughs> <Yeah>. Dr. Ruth Van. <laughs> um, he's there to drink some more of her blood. <laughs> Uh, it seems he's been doing this uh, for a little while now. Uh, the flash of Jimmy Olsen's camera reveals the vampire's true form, so he dissipates in the mist and flees the scene. Later, Jimmy shows this picture to Lois, and it shows Lucy hanging in the air alone. Uh, duh, vampires can't be photographed. There you go. There's your proof right there. You got a, you got a limp Lucy hanging around in the middle, middle air. Got to be a vampire. No other thing mm -hmm. it can be. Uh, in the the vampire in the guise of Dr. Ruth Venn visits guitar, a guitar strummer loner and bites her neck, sort of becomes important <laughs> in the next issue. Uh, Jimmy's dressed to the nines as a vampire hunter and on uh, Dr. Ruth Venn's trail. Robin surprises him on, on a rooftop and they tussle. Under a streetlight, Dr. Ruth Venn watches and laughs. He sort of coalesces from mist and laughs at them. Robin and Jimmy swoop down from the building to attack him with holy water and a crucifix, but they have no effect. Seems that modern technology has neutralized the effects of these classic vampire herding and maiming items. Uh, Jimmy presses his signal watch to call Superman. He's been busy all issue committing various acts of super heroism. You see Superman, I can't even remember, you know, lifting a yacht out of the water or whatever he's doing, sealing up a volcano. He's busy the whole issue, but... Uh, he's on patrol. Exactly. You know, Superman's got a lot to do. 
Dr. Ruth Van pulls off a mask to reveal his vampire form. Why he's wearing a mask? I don't know. Do you know why? I mean, he, obviously no he can change form at will, but he tried to put on a mask today. That's fine. Sure. Now the uh, vampire crushes Jimmy's wrist and signal watch with it. Robin threatens the vampire with a piece of broken wooden fence. But the vampire sidesteps, and the wood goes right through Jimmy's right shoulder. Ew. Uh, Superman <laughs> shows up and punches the vampire in the face. Uh, after securing Jimmy and Robin on a rooftop, Superman turns his attention to the vampire. The vampire tries to hypnotize Superman, but Supes flies him into the eastern horizon where the sun's beginning to rise. This appears to turn the vampire to dust, as it does. Uh, but at the end, his voice can still be heard by Superman, Robin, and Jimmy, along with a peal of evil laughter, signifying that this ain't over, folks. Hey, you know, this is clever because the next issue is not Man of Steel, obviously. It's Superman number 70. However, if you had just a, if you didn't know about the triangle numbering, this, this is a complete story, you know, even though it kind of is yeah. left with a, you know, easy kind of ending. Anyway... So Superman number 70, Raising the Stakes is the title of it. Get it? The stakes, hey. you know, like a wooden stake that you draw. Anyway, uh, cover has <laughs> Superman in the foreground clutched by a blonde female vampire and blood's trickling from a bite on his neck. Robin's right behind him looking shocked and wielding a wooden stake. This is the third Robin. Uh, Tim Drake's the one in this story, so let's give his stats. Tim Drake first showed up in Batman number 436, August 1989, but first appeared as Robin in Batman number 442, December 1989 Created by Marv Wolfman and Pat Broderick This is Bruce Wayne's neighbor Tim Drake figures out that he's Batman And after uh, second Robin Jason Todd's Untimely death Figures he needs a new Robin to keep things light While they punch criminals Sort of works his way into it You would say that's a good condensing, condensed version of his uh, origin there Perfect. Chris? Pretty good Perfect. right So there's, there's <laughs> sort of a little bit more to it that ba Give you the basic idea um, well, The title spread shows Robin and Superman Alighting on a building and Robin wielding a wooden stake he pretty much only, It's in his hand the whole time I don't think he drops the wooden stake for one second No. And he explains that it's the best For thwarting vampires He says I suppose you could always try Lopping off his head But that could get a little messy to which Superman replies, wouldn't you consider these solutions a little extreme, Robin? We're talking about people here. Ex-people. Vampires are undead, as they're no longer alive. Everything we do to them is moot. He seems a little over-enthusiastic about this, if you ask me. Don't he's, you? he's really in the mood to kill vampires. He's like become bloodthirsty maniac <laughs> over here. I don't know what this is unusual for Robin. He says, uh, one thing Batman always taught me is that extreme problems require extreme solutions. Batman's apparently taught you a number of things You handle that robe in these heights Like you've been doing it for years Gee, thanks That's cool of you to notice I mean, it's kind of nice working with someone who isn't so Intense all the time And Superman's probably thinking the same thing If Robin wasn't so bloodthirsty yeah, at the really? moment <laughs> Now Superman and Robin visit Jimmy Olsen in the hospital And uh, seeing that he's okay Are about to leave almost immediately I mean, it's like they practically <laughs> enter the room and They just turn, pop their heads they in They turn around like, right away They <laughs> pop their heads in, you cool? Okay yeah, Alright, later <laughs> Now as they leave, Jimmy calls Superman back over He says it's my girlfriend, Lucy Lane, Superman. You gotta help her. She's already gotten the big bite. It's one of them hot dogs from 7-Eleven you get with the big gulp, right? That's what I used to get all the time when I was a teenager. <laughs> yeah, she, she's a vampire. And 
Superman tells Jimmy to cool it. He's on the case. Yeah. So Superman ditches Robin and heads over to Lois's apartment. Uh, we should mention that he and Lois are engaged at this point, though uh, there there is something on the horizon that's going to slow that down. That's right. But then there is redemption and happiness. So don't despair, readers. It will be yes. all good in the end. <laughs> now Superman thinks to himself, if Robin is right and these people are all are already dead, what good can I do? I'm not a magician or sorcerer. Despite all these powers, I may not be able to help my own future sister-in-law. In Jimmy Olsen's hospital room, Jimmy Olsen and Robin are resigned to find Lucy, even though <laughs> Robin and Superman both expressed concern for Jimmy. I mean, they said he lost a lot of blood. He should stay there while they take care of things. But apparently now Five Robin— Five minutes ago. Like, I mean, yeah, like, <laughs> that was the last thing that happened. Now Robin's all gung-ho, and he says, I say we track down that blood-sucking Dr. Ruthven and put an end to his reign of terror by sending him straight to hell. Wow, hardcore. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, we uh, we cut to hell, <laughs> where a fat green guy in Coke bottle glasses informs the demon Blaze that hell is running out of souls. Hmm. <laughs> Blaze, uh, later Lady Blaze, first appeared in Action Comics number 655, July 1990 cover date. She was created by Roger Stern and Bob McCloud. Uh, she hangs out in Metropolis and steals souls. Uh, she's basically DC Comics Lucifer, except for their, you know, character Lucifer, who is actually Lucifer. Lucifer, right? So, I yeah. guess so. When he's busy, they they haul out Blaze. Yeah, I think she runs a nightclub. That's right, exactly. A, yeah, she runs, and that's like yeah. part of her her trapment is this the souls come largely through there. Yeah, now the uh, green guy further explains that several souls meant for delivery into hell never made it for some reason. Uh, this is, uh, as he says this, a maggot is crawling out of his eye socket, which is a good look. Right. <laughs> now, Blaze blames Superman because he's always been such a goody two-shoes. Yeah, she says, Are my affairs to be entwined with that infernal shrine of goodness yet again? It's him! Only he would dare interfere with me! Let this smoke of insight reveal the truth! Yeah, and as she says that, she wafts some smoke around, and it reveals the city of Metropolis, where a man is about to jump off the, maybe the new Troy Bridge, we Yeah, think? I mean, that's like, sure. you know, from my memory of Metropolis, that's like the only other real borough, right? I don't know. Yeah. Midvale <laughs> Bridge, something like that. One of them. Uh, before he can hit the water, Blaze appears to him as an angel. She promises that if he pledges himself to her, not only will she save his life, but make it worth living again. God, this is getting downright biblical, wouldn't you say? I know Goodness. Blaze says, Hush, child, be patient and trust in me, and you will find your life will begin anew. I will see to your rescue. Meanwhile, Superman is flying his way to Lucy's place. The sun is set, and a thick fog swirls around Metropolis. A sort of foggy blaze manifests right next to Superman and talks to him spookily. Yeah, she says, <laughs> Superman, use your special vision. Weird. I could almost swear I heard. Look, the bridge. Superman glances over and sees the fellow plummeting to his death. In fact, he's been frozen in air, and when Superman looks at him, he starts falling again. Superman recognizes him as former boss of the Daily Planet, Sam Foswell. Now, Samuel Foswell first appeared in Superman Volume 2, number 51, January 1991, cover date, created by Jerry Ordway. After the death of Perry White's son, Jerry, 
Uh, that's right, Jerry White. Uh, mm -hmm. Sam assumed the role of editor of the Daily Planet while Perry and Alice White went on a Caribbean cruise. Sam is later hired by Newstime, and that will actually be post this issue. Uh, Superman rescues Sam and drops him off at the wharf. Yeah, he says, look, mister, I just wanted you to promise me that you'll never try anything like this again. Foswell says, oh, you don't have to worry about me, Superman. I know we're all part of some great grand scheme now. Might I suggest you call the suicide prevention hotline to talk with someone? Unnecessary, sir. Trust me when I say that I have seen the light. I'd like to stay and talk, but frankly, you bore me. Oh, but I, I have an emergency to take care of. Good luck. That's classic Superman, right? Just like, mm -hmm. all right, Sonny, goodbye. <laughs> yep, pat on the back and happy trails. Yeah. Uh, Blaze is watching all of this unfold from her demonic lair. Foswell thinks to himself, luck? Who needs luck when one has a guardian angel looking out for him? Unless I actually imagined the entire affair. And Blaze, while watching, says, Oh, you didn't imagine this, little man. You are now a part of this game of mine, a game I shall enjoy winning all the more since my brother is obviously involved. Uh, the next panel shows the exterior of Lucy Lane's apartment building, and there's a voiceover and heavily bordered captions that look very creepy. Yes, this is the Lord of the Undead, and he says, She's here. My worshiper, my follower, my pride is here. She would hide from the damning light of the sun, but she shan't hide from me. No barriers can prevent me from claiming her. None can resist the will of the Lord of the Undead. I always say that. I always, like, say my name after I... Yeah, exactly. Of Christian. None can take out the garbage as well as Christian. Uh, it's true. Now, it's. I think it's supposed to be red, but it's definitely to me. It looked gray. Uh, smoke yeah. wafts into Lucy's room, and congeals into a vampire that looks especially like Nosferatu. We'll be talking about Nosferatu later in the episode. Yes, it is. You know, the Lord of the Undead, and he says, "Lucy, come to me, my thrall." Lucy steps out of the closet and says, Is it dark? Is it safe, my lord? The hell is she hanging out in the closet for? Uh, he says, <laughs> Indeed, pet. Lucy allows herself to be clutched by the lord of the undead, and he rears his head back to reveal two huge pointy fangs. Uh, presumably he's going to bite her neck some more, but it doesn't look like he's going to eat her chin. Yes. But, I mean, I guess, you know, he can turn his head, you know, it, it, we're kind of catching a mid-bite, but it really does seem like an awkward pose right there. It does. Uh, now, on the streets of Metropolis, Jimmy Olsen, with his arm in a sling, and Robin are using a payphone to spy on Lucy. I, I think the kids used to call this phone freaking. That's right. That's, a, that's what it seems <laughs> like to me. Robin says, All I do is take this modem and break it to the computers of the agency that monitors her, her security alarm. Nobody just considered calling Lucy, I guess. <laughs> this, this is like something that a 12-year-old boy would come up with on his crush, right? Oh, you know, I'll just hang outside her window all week and see what she does anyway. Uh, that way we'll be able to tell when somebody break... Yo, check it out. Somebody broke in not two minutes ago. Drac is there making his play right now. To which Jimmy Olsen says, To the Olsenmobile. We're gonna nail that goon for good. Now Superman arrives at Lucy's apartment at that very moment, but she's gone and the window is open. He's too late. Superman spots a pool of blood on the floor and rightfully he suspects it's Lucy's pretty good detective work. 
Lucy is with the Lord of the Undead and several other thralls in some cemetery tucked in the woods. The Lord of the Undead says, Welcome, my children. Tonight we are complete. An army of unstoppable creatures ready to march on this city of the damned. If each of us claims two more victims tonight, our army will triple in size. Now, hold on. This is really starting to sound like a pyramid scheme. I think... Maybe these people should get lawyers before. Yeah, because then if, the, if those if those guys claim two and then they claim two exactly. and then yeah. they you, oh, you know if you can get two people to pay you blood <laughs> then you get they get four people. Yeah. yeah, I've heard this before. I think so. I I sat in on that uh, on that. <laughs> uh, the Lord of the Undead continues, and I shall finally have command and the rule I so richly deserve. Uh, Robin and Jimmy are coming to this very location in uh, the uh, Olsen Mobile. Yes. Seems Jimmy saw some red mist waft into the area. Uh, it's a special note to the uh, kids listening. Uh, don't follow wafting red mist. Yeah, it's not, it not never gonna, leads to anything good. not going to be anything good. Robin says, chill out, Jim. You're wound tighter than a cheap watch, and we're going to meet our we're going to need our wits to beat this guy. You said it, but how would we take this take on this guy and win? We sure could use Superman, but there's no way to call him here now with that Drac trash my signal watch. That's uh, you know, that was that scene that happened when Jimmy had his hand crushed in Man of Steel number fourteen. That's right. It's it's a callback. They're using it. Robin <laughs> says, "Oh, there might be a way to get him here. You won't like it though." Anything. I'll do anything to get Superman in on this. Okay, listen up. It's a desperate sacrifice for a desperate cause. That sounds ominous. Uh, the uh, Lord of the Undead is preparing to move on Metropolis with his horde when Jimmy and Robin come barreling into the scene in the Olsen mobile. <laughs> Robin and Jimmy jump out and allow the car to crash against a tree where it explodes immediately and brilliantly with a boom. Yeah, it must have been a Ford Pinto. <clears throat> I think is that so. Still, is that still a relevant joke these days? I don't know. That's a, <laughs> It's only like a 60-40-year-old car or something. Uh, Lord of the Undead snatches Jimmy and Robin by their collars and hoists them into the sky. Fools, I'll snap your spines and drink your blood until you twitch in death. See, Robin, your idea didn't even work. It worked. Actually, I'd say it worked perfectly. Superman snatches Robin and Jimmy away from the Lord of the Undead, but his thralls immediately swarm them. Superman says, nice idea, Robin. I couldn't have missed a blast like that. Robin says, that was the easy part. Now we gotta deal with all these vampire goonies. As he says that, vampire Lucy Lane makes a beeline for Jimmy. This one is mine! Lucy! The Lord of the Undead has designs on a more challenging meal. He grabs Superman by his cape and yanks him near. And this one is mine. Ugh. The Lord of the Undead is punching <laughs> Superman in the face. Your attacks are useless. Thousands have tried to p- defeat me over hundreds of years, and all have met death. To which Superman thinks to himself, can't do, dot, 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 anything against him. His powers must be based in magic. While Jimmy, uh, you know, Superman's having trouble, but Jimmy breaks free of Lucy with a kick to her midsection. Believe me, Luce, this definitely hurts me a lot more than it hurts you. You don't know that, but Robin says, <laughs> You're fighting defensively, Red. We have to hit these goons hard and hit them fast. 
how many wooden stakes did they bring? They brought the one, right? I only saw the one in his hand, but uh, <laughs> And Robin's using it right now. Yeah. Uh, now. The Lord of the Undead has Superman in his grip, and he can't break free. He needs a stake. Uh, things are looking bleak for Superman. While in his clutches, the Lord of the Undead calls Lucy over. Says she can have the honor of biting the Man of Steel's neck. Which is, uh, you know, pretty kind of him. I thought so. I mean, she's like sure. a brand new thrall, and she's already stepping up biting Superman. Wow. I know. Uh, Robin sees Superman about to be bitten and decides there's only one thing to do. Uh-oh, looks like Big Blue is in a big fix. Only one way to prevent Superman from turning into a blood-sucking freak, and that's to bury the stake right through her heart. So Robin pounces with his stake fully drawn. Jimmy ain't happy. He yells, No! Jimmy tackles Robin so he can't stake Lucy, but also distracts her from her imminent blood drinking, so that's good. Robin says, You've blown it, Red. Superman is going to be the most powerful vampire of them all. And how do you kill an undead Superman? Probably a stake made of kryptonite, that, right? That's what I would use, yeah. Pretty That'd be the first try, I think. Uh-huh. Now, Blaze is watching this all unfold through her magic smoke, and uh, she ain't pleased with the proceedings. No, even though she pretty much arranged them, she doesn't like what happened here. <laughs> she says, By the dark mists of hell, I have sworn that Superman's soul will one day be mine to claim. It's time for Blaze to enter and end this charade. If it is power, this insignificant vampire claim claims that let him taste the ultimate power and the sky above the cemetery is lit with a brilliant light and uh we mean brilliant yeah. like a sustained flash bulb that practically whites out everything around it even goes shroom yeah, that's how powerful it is it makes noise mm-hmm. that's okay <laughs> Yes, Blaze has cheated and lit the place with extreme sunlight. This cleanses the thralls of their vampirism. Radical stuff, this light, it's curing those people. But the Lord of the Dead has a backup plan. I don't know how you did this, Superman, but my helmet's technology will shield me from this damnable light. Now the Lord of the Dead uh, tries to fly away, but Superman takes off after him. Feel so weak. Even my protective suit isn't protecting me from this infernal light. To which Superman thinks to himself, This light is so bright, dot, 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 so intense that I can't see a thing. I know he's here somewhere, dash, dash. Yes, got him. I like this that, you know, he was still hindered by the. The by light grammar. proved to be a problem to both of them, you know what I mean? That was yes. cool. And also by grammar a little bit, yeah. <laughs> Superman grabs Lord of the Undead's ankle and tosses him back to Earth. No, I refuse to be captured. I, I, my, my helmet malfunctioning. What force has done this to me? Too much pain. Can't control my flight. I, uh, uh, no, it can't. Can't. The Lord of the Undead is impaled on the bayonet protruding from the statue of a shoulder, so I guess the statue of a soldier... So I guess the statue's made of wood. That seems like a strange thing in a cemetery, but... Uh, yeah, you figure that's not good in the rain, right? No, I think it would be a little messed <laughs> up, but all right. <laughs> the Lord of the Undead says, Can't be the end. Curse you, super. Then the Lord of the Undead dissipates into mist and vanishes completely. Superman flies over to Jimmy, Lucy, and Robin. Yeah, Superman says, He's vanished. Dead, I imagine. What's the situation here? <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy replies. Jimmy replies. Lucy's fine. In fact, everyone seems to be back to normal. I don't know how you did it, but it worked wonders. 
I didn't have a thing to do with it. Whatever that light was, whatever caused it, it wasn't me. And we'll close this tale with one last look at Blaze and her weird, capricious ways. Yeah, she's still, you know, watching the scene. She says, he's vanquished, I claim total victory. Yes, her sidekick, Burp, would say, <laughs> I still can't believe that Techno Vampire was your brother. Oh, cruelest of the cruel. This puny distraction was not my brother. No, my brother wields far more power and cunning than this sad specimen. My brother is the accursed Satanus, and now I fear he desires Superman's soul and has taken root in Metropolis to ensnare it. Hmm. Just then, Sam Foswell is strolling by the cemetery while police cars with their lights spinning race to the scene. A Mr. Thornton of Newstime Magazine happens to bump into Sam Foswell. Yeah, Foswell says, Mr. Thornton, what brings you out this time of night? Well, that brilliant flash of light, my friend. That and the fact I couldn't depend on News Times editor to dispatch a reporter. How would you like to solve that little problem of mine by coming to work for my magazine's as my magazine's new managing editor? Me? You? You're offering me a job? And then he thinks to himself, the angel was right. She's she's changed everything for me. Give yourself some credit, Sam. It was your idea to stroll past the creepiest cemetery in Metropolis in the dead of night. That's right. Uh, lurking in the shadows is some woman with a big hairdo, uh, who, based on a face peering out from the pupil of her eye, is possessed by Satanus. We must assume that this is actually the same rock and roll girl that. Uh, the Lord of the bit, Undead yeah. the Last issue that was just sort of a throwaway And uh, our final caption is Next week in Adventures of Superman Number 493 The Blaze Satanist War begins So that was one heck of an issue Huh Chris mm -hmm. uh, you, actually, you actually did this very issue on your blog Chris is on Earth.com uh, you, you had a Halloween month that eventually mm -hmm. proved to almost undo you, really, at one time. <laughs> uh, but, you know, this, this is a pretty solid issue, even though with, uh, in our reading, I, I don't know if uh, everyone's going to notice that Jimmy Olsen changed roles midway, but that's okay. The, the first person playing Jimmy Olsen had to uh, leave the stage. Uh, yes. Had a, it, uh, it was a union. It's a union. A pride, uh, it's exactly. A, it's a union part. A certain amount of time <laughs> I, I was allowed on the air. Uh, but I enjoyed it. You know what I mean? I thought it, it, yeah. was, it was funny. A lot of callbacks to, like, a lot of vampire lore that we are going to get into. And, uh, you know, it's it's Superman acting heroically with Robin acting the way I, I expect Robin to act. And I, I can't mm -hmm. fault it for that. A little silly at points, of course, whenever Blaze is in the mix. Yeah, and the Olsen Mobile, of course. The Olsen Mobile is probably my favorite. Also, I mean, the extreme cheating of, I mean, I, you know, Blaze is basically the devil. So mm -hmm. I guess we can't expect the devil to play fair, but the, the level of cheating here, I mean, they're, they're basically, you know, the Superman and, and Robin are on the ropes and then she pulls out the uh, flash bulb. So yeah, I wouldn't call that a fair fight. You know, that would definitely, that's definitely disputable. It has an asterisk in the, uh, annals <laughs> in the of Superman. Book, yeah. yes. <laughs> but anyway, that's, uh, that's just our first part. We are going to come back after a break and talk a little bit more about Dan Jurgens. A little bit more about uh, vampires and a little bit more about Superman and Robin. To stop the evil doomsday, you need a hero who's more than a man. Superman. He's been called the greatest, the strongest, the first among heroes. Superman. 
high-voltage villain conduit is powered by kryptonite. But with krypton cannon blasting, laser Superman powers him down. Conduit will learn... Don't mess with the S. Superman! It's the dreaded Doomsday, the most fearsome force in the universe. Even Doomsday will learn... You don't mess with the S. Superman figures each sold separately, blocks not included. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We are talking about Superman, Robin, and Dan Jurgens, And we're going to wrap up his biography right here. Uh, not long after the issue we just read, Superman number 70, for this episode, Dan Jurgens orchestrated the death of Superman, involving his newly created characters Cyborg, Superman, and Doomsday. I didn't think to, for some reason, put a beginning point for Doomsday. It was in that <laughs> series. Uh, he showed uh, his first appearance was uh, Superman Man of Steel number 17. Okay. It was uh, it showed his fist. His and fist that was punching, it. punching in the, on the last <laughs> yes. page. That, that, that was all you saw for a long time, and then you kind of saw him tear across the countryside and eventually fight Superman in Metropolis. But I did write down Cyborg Superman debuted as Hank Henshaw in Adventures of Superman number 466. That was May 1990. And then he came back as Cyborg Superman in Adventures of Superman number 500, June 1993. So that's a pretty long game, a long con he was playing there. Yeah, and he, the uh, Hank Henshaw was part of like a space exploration team that was they they kind of felt like uh, analogs to the Fantastic Four. It was, Absolutely, uh, yeah, that's pretty interesting. Their <laughs> stick, and they had kind of a sad ending. Uh, of course, it was very very. It was a cool <laughs> book that issue. Yeah, certainly. And then uh, Jurgens wrote and drew Justice League America after uh, after the Giffen DiMatteis run. This was issues sixty one through seventy seven, April nineteen ninety two to July nineteen ninety three cover dates. Uh, he penciled a four issue Metal Man se Metal Man series in nineteen ninety three as well. It was a. I know the first issue had a uh, had a nice chromium cover to it. Nice. Um, yes, and. Uh, See, he uh, wrote and uh, penciled the crossover. This was a like a follow-up to Crisis on Infinite Earths that we talked about at length. This is Zero Hour, of course. He also did uh, Superman Doomsday Hunter Prey, which was a prestige format miniseries. Uh, both of those were in 1994. Uh, he scripted and provided layout art for Superman vs. Aliens. This is a miniseries co-produced by uh, Dark Horse in DC in 1995. And, you know, reading it, I don't really have any specific quotes, but he really feels very fondly about this specifically. About uh, Superman Aliens. Superman Aliens, yeah. I, yeah. I never read it, I, now, but hearing him talk about it, how much he, he felt he poured himself into it, I really got to check it out. Uh, I'm, sure it's Absolutely. Pretty, I'm sure it's pretty good. Yeah, I haven't gotten around to it either, but I think he, uh, I think he actually just tweeted about it a little bit. Really? Maybe because the Alien movie just came out. Oh, right, that makes um, sense. Let's see, in uh, 1995, he would give up the art duties on Superman. He stayed on as writer, though. Uh, in 1996, he did contribute some more art. Uh, this is to The Wedding Album. This is a Superman issue, uh, a standalone, dedicated to uh, Clark Kent and Lois Lane's wedding. Uh, most notably, he contributed a three-page spread of the ceremony that was inked by Jerry Ordway. But th this uh, this issue had, like, every Superman creator every that, Superman alive creator. at the yeah. time. Yeah, so, it, so he, everyone got a little piece of it. Yeah, even had a uh, for one of the covers was a was a John Byrne cover, oh. which was uh, pretty neat at the time. Um, in 1996, Jurgens and Italian artist Claudio Castellini worked on the highly publicized crossover Marvel vs. DC. Uh, in 1997, Dan developed the Tangent Comics imprint, Elseworlds annual gimmick, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. <laughs> yes, uh, with the uh, you know the with the with the black Superman and the female Green Lantern and all the characters with the same names, but totally. Different, totally different. Else. Everything, you know, like powers. <laughs> I mean, it's such a weird uh, project. It's available in the world in trade, and I bet you it's not sure. too much money. 
Yeah, and you could probably, well, I, I know for sure you could find them in the uh, in the bins. Yeah. <laughs> in uh, January 96, Jurgens was writer and penciler of the sensational Spider-Man at Marvel Comics. This was the uh, the title that took over for Web of Spider-Man mm-hmm. and uh, was meant to be the springboard for the brand new or returning old Spider-Man <laughs> portrayed by Ben Riley. Uh, the initial seven issues, which was issues zero through six, uh, January through July 1996, were written and penciled by uh, Jurgens. Uh, Jurgens would push strongly for the restoration of Peter Parker as the one true Spider-Man, and plans were made to, uh, you know, put this into motion. However, Bob Harris and probably Marvel, uh, Marvel's uh, merchandising yeah. and uh, sales team, uh, they demanded that the story be deferred until after the uh, big X-Men onslaught crossover. Uh, Jurgens had become disillusioned with the chaotic group planning and constant changes to uh, ideas and directions and would wind up resigning from the title. Yeah, although he has said he would like to go back, although, what is it, you know, who wouldn't, I guess, really, to write, exactly. write their, one of their favorite characters. We did cover all that in our, God, I can't remember the episode. Uh, it was talk when we talked about Spectacular saga. 226. Yeah. 226, so if you look that up, we go into good detail about that. So back to DC, uh, Jurgens wrote and penciled Teen Titans Volume 2 for its entire two-year, 24-issue run, October 96 to September 1998 cover dates. George Perez, the co-creator of the new Teen Titans, served as an inker for the series' first, first 15 issues, and that must have been something. Imagine being inked by George Perez. Wow. That's got to be, yeah, that's got <laughs> to be know, humbling, like, to say the least. Boing, uh, but uh, <laughs> after 10 years working on the Superman character, Jurgens ended his run as writer with Superman Volume 2, number 150, cover date November 1999. In that same year, Jurgens was writer and layout artist for the tabloid-sized graphic novel Superman Fantastic Four with finished art by former Adventures of Superman inker Art Theber. Theber? Thebear? Thebear, there we go. I don't know. I don't either. <laughs> Jurgens worked with Marvel <laughs> Comics as writer on Thor Volume 2 with penciling by John Romita Jr. and as writer-artist on Captain America Volume 3. The Thor also, I, I never read that, but uh, that was Heroes Reborn, right? And, yeah, this uh, was uh, right after, no, this is after Heroes Return. and. Okay. Uh, this is uh, Thor launched a little bit after uh, like the big four, like the Avengers, Captain America, Iron Man, and Fantastic Four. Thor came a bit later, hmm. but had like a, a, the same variant Sunburst cover that they all had. Okay, so kind of fit into that family. It, I, it, I, part of the same initiative, it sounds like too, kind absolutely. of resuscitate these uh, characters, bring things back to basics, which uh, Marvel tends to do every now and again. <laughs> they say they, <laughs> cl- they claim they're doing all the time, and yet it never gets more basic. <laughs> Uh, anyway, I, I've heard good things about that run, but I can't claim to have read it or be a huge there's, Thor fan. But yeah, I'm the same way. But there's one issue that's really cool. I think it's a, I think it's issue six, where like the entire uh, Thor adventure is being narrated by like a, a Howard Stern esque shock jock. Oh, that's cool. And it's it's pretty. It's probably my favorite issue of the Jurgens Thor run. It's it's pretty good. I might have to give it a look sometime. I do have the uh, Marvel app, so I can look at True. it at my leisure. Anyway. Uh, in 95, going back to that, he was writer-penciler on Solar Number 46 from Valiant Comics with inker Dick Giordano, and Dan stuck around there for a while. Penciler Tom Grinberg joined in for issues 51 to 54 after Jurgens relinquished penciler duties with issue number 50, so it's a long run he did there. Sure. Uh, beginning in 1999, Jurgens was the debut writer of the Tomb Raider the Series comic book. This was licensed to Top, top Cow Promotions uh, Productions through uh, Image Comics. Uh, the debut issue of Tomb Raider was the number one selling comic book of 
the entire year, which is pretty pretty huge. I don't know if that says something about the industry or Tomb Raider, or both, <laughs> uh, something like that. Poor Kane Allah's Jerkins was the uh, writer of the series until issue 21. In uh, 2000, Dan was the writer and provided layouts for the four-issue uh, pre- four prestige miniseries Titans, Legion of Superheroes, Universe Ablaze, with uh, finishes provided by Phil Jimenez. I actually just came across that in uh, in a quarter bin. I, oh. I picked it up. I hadn't. I'd never seen it in the wild before. Coming soon on Crisis on Crisis on Infinite Earths.com. Yeah. Possibly yes. Uh, Jurgens wrote Aquaman Volume Three from issue 63. This is January 2000 until its cancellation with issue 75, cover dated January 2001. In uh, November 2002, he wrote and penciled the four-issue weekly miniseries uh, Superman Day of Doom. This was January 2003. This marked the 10-year anniversary of the Death of Superman event from 1992, which makes me feel positively ancient that we're about to celebrate the 25th. Yeah, we're getting there, you know, very soon. Actually, we're there right (laughs) now, really. Hello. Now, in uh, 2005... Jurgens moved into the world of book publishing to write and illustrate uh, You Can Draw Marvel Characters by, for uh, Dorling Kindersley, Pump, Kindersley Publishing. <laughs> uh, he was returned to DC Comics, providing layouts for the lead story in Infinite Crisis Secret Files 2006 special. That was cover dated April 2006. And he would provide art for the weekly 52 series and the six-issue limited series uh, Crisis Aftermath, The Battle for Bloodhaven, written by Jimmy Palmi and Justin Gray. Uh, Jurgens collaborated with writer-creator Marv Wolfman on the Nightwing series for issues 125 through 128. Uh, on Metamorpho Year One, Jurgens was writer and penciler for the first true first two issues. Uh, Mike Norton would draw the uh, issues three through six. Guy stays busy. Let me tell you, he, uh, he is a busy dude. Keeps chugging along. Uh, Jurgens was writer and artist of the history of the multiverse backup stories and weekly countdown in the weekly comic countdown, which appeared in issues forty nine to thirty eight. Because uh, they were counting down, you see. <laughs> At the Los Angeles Comic Con in March 2007, DC announced a new ongoing Booster, Go- Booster Gold series written by Jeff Johns, penciled by Jurgens, inked by Norm Rapmund, to begin shortly after the end of 52. We read a comic from that. Uh, mm-hmm. It did, though, uh, though these names wouldn't be involved with the series indefinitely. That's right. Yeah. Um, sorry, I was rubbing my eye for a minute, folks. I just sort of break the fourth wall for you. Uh, he was writer of the Tangent Superman's Reign Limited series in 2008, revising the Tangent comic characters. And Dan Roden illustrated an issue of The Brave and the Bold in Volume 2, Number 23, covered in July 2009, which featured Booster Gold and Magog. Or Magog, whatever you like. Sure. Dan was part of DC Comics' new 52 relaunch in 2011, not 2001, as I've written here, uh, becoming the writer of the new Justice League International series with our artist Aaron Lopresti. And Dan was the artist of the new Green Arrow series with writer J.T. Krull and inker George Perez. Initially, and only for part of it, that was one of the most beleaguered series early on yeah, in the so new 52. I think, I think they had four or five creator changes before they... Landed on and and Nascenti for a while, and then uh, Jeff Lemire came in. He would he became co-writer of Green Arrow with Keith Giffen on issues three through six, and George Perez had vanished by then over a Superman-related uh, thing. Jurgens returned to Superman, drawing and he returned and drawing and writing with Keith Giffen. Their first issue was number seven, May 2012, and during 2012-2013. 
Jurgens was writer and artist of Fury of the Firestorms, The Nuclear Men, from issues 13 to 20. Then it was canceled. Yes. 2014, he and Giffen, together with Jeff Lemire and Brian Az Azzarello, co-wrote the weekly series, The New 52, Future's End. Uh, less said about that, the better. Jurgens became writer for <laughs> Batman Beyond, starting with issue number one in June 2015, and he's still writing it now, even through Rebirth. He was writer of the two-issue miniseries Convergence Superman in 2015 and was the writer for Superman Lois and Clark, which kind of spun out of that event. That was from 2015 to 2016, and that is essentially the Superman that we have today, and he is writing, uh, after the relaunch in 2016, he is writing action comics right now. Mm -hmm. And he is married with two, ch two children. So that's, that's Dan, and Chris met him and shook his hand. Yes. Yes, uh, in, in uh, June of 20, 2016, he had the opportunity to pose for a picture <laughs> with <laughs> with one of the hosts of the Cosmic Treadmill. It was a uh, landmark day for him. Really, sh I really no. should have put that on the uh, on the bio. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, he was a he was a very gracious fella. He's a, a really cool guy to talk to. For as brief as I did talk to him, and as shaken in my boots as I was, he was yeah. a, a great dude to talk to. He He's, seems like a totally enthusiastic and humble kind of guy. And, and totally. You, and totally. You tell from the way that he has like just not stopped working for either company he's got to be well liked you know what i mean he sure you can't be a total jerk and get that much work consistently absolutely no when I, after after i met him and and my wife took our picture she's like she's like okay what did he do and i, I was like oh he's the one who killed superman she's like what <laughs> <laughs> no like he's, he seemed too nice yeah it's like uh, but that's enough of that. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about a history of vampires, since we uh, have just met, uh, you know, the baddest of the bad vampires. That's in right, the, the Lord Superman. of the Undead. <laughs> now let's talk about some ancient blood drinking. Uh, tales of, of supernatural being can... Supernatural beings consuming the blood or flesh of the living has been found in nearly every culture around the world for many centuries. Uh, we're not going to discuss flesh eaters, though, not only because it narrows our scope to stick to blood drinking, but because those would fit in a particular comic book subset uh, known as ghouls, and uh, cannibals really freak me out, too, so yeah. I don't want to talk about that. We won't get into uh, that. <laughs> Eventually, uh, the uh, Persians were one of the first civilizations to have tales of specifically blood-drinking demons. These creatures attempting to drink blood from men uh, were, de were depicted on excavated pottery shards. So going back a long time, even even mm -hmm. in ancient Babylonia and Assyria, they had tales of the mythical Lit Litlu Liltu, demons mm. that drank the blood of babies. This most likely morphed into the Hebrew tale of Lilith from the Old Testament, who was Adam's first girlfriend before Eve, and then when he when she felt jealous, she started stealing babies by night as revenge, which interesting tactic to take. In sure. uh, Greco-Roman mythology, described. Uh, Empuse, the daughter of the goddess Hecate, who feasted on blood by transforming into a young woman and seduced men as they slept before drinking their blood. In ancient Greece also had the Lamia, who preyed on young children in their beds at night, sucking their blood. In uh, 1645, the Greek librarian of the Vatican, Leo Alidius, Alidius? Sure. Yeah. Uh, produced the first methodolo methodological description of the Balkan beliefs in vampires. Uh, in Greek, it's Vrikolakas. Uh, yeah. Right? That's good. <laughs> I can't wait for you to do this next phrase. It's good. <laughs> oh, 
Holy smokes, okay. In his work, De Recordium Hode Quorundum Opinadabudus. We're just going to translate that for you here. Uh, on certain modern opinions among the Greeks. Isn't that the best title of anything you ever heard? I think it is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we just need to put a dot com on the end of it. Right. Um, <laughs> vampires proper originate in uh, folklore, widely reported from Eastern Europe in late 17th and 18th centuries. One of the earliest recordings of vampire activity came from the region of Istria in modern Croatia in 1672. A former peasant, Yuri, died in 1656. Twenty years later, local villages claimed he returned from the dead and began drinking the blood from people and sexually harassing his widow. Well, for good was, measure. Yeah, that was something a vampire can do, I guess, while you're while you're the undead. Sure. During the 18th century, there was a frenzy of vampire sightings in Eastern Europe, uh, with frequent stakings and grave diggings to identify and kill the potential revenants. Yeah, even government officials engaged in the hunting and staking of vampires. The panic began with an outbreak of alleged vampire attacks in East Prussia in 1721 and, the Haps- and in the Habsburg monarchy from 1725 to 1734, which spread to other localities. The first two vampire cases to be officially recorded ever involved the corpse of Peter Blagov. Blagojevich from Serbia uh, Blagojevich was reported to have died At the age of 62 but allegedly returned After his death asking his son For food when the son refused He was found dead the following day Blagojevich uh, Supposedly returned and Attacked some neighbors who died from loss of blood hmm. uh, The second case which is also from Serbia Involved Milos Kezar Milos Kezar huh? Yeah Sure. <laughs> Milos is an ex-soldier uh, turned farmer. You don't want to know how that was really spelled there, Chris. Take my word for it. <laughs> <laughs> Tried to do phonetic for you. <laughs> that works fine. Uh, uh, Milos, he's an ex-soldier who, re- who turned into a uh, farmer, and he was allegedly attacked by a vampire years before and died while making hay. Uh, after his death, people began to die in the surrounding area, and it was widely believed that Milos had returned to prey on the neighbors. Uh, the two incidents were well documented. Government officials examined the bodies, wrote case reports, and published books uh, throughout Europe, uh, resulting in vampire hysteria that lasted more than a decade. I mean, this is like a- incredible to me. This is, isn't like it? True court cases of vampires, and and even on the face of it, the evidence is so circumstantial. You know, it is. It it's is. like so somebody somebody died, and then twenty years later, other people died, and they were like, it must, you know, this is uh, this is like the weirdest game of telephone. Yeah, it's just, it, it just keeps growing. It just and, and it did it, it grew for uh, a couple of hundred years. We're gonna fast forward because we could obviously. <laughs> this this is a massive topic by itself, but we're gonna go into our understanding and what informs the comic that we've read, and talk about Dracula. That's really uh, the basis for our modern understanding of vampires. It's from this one book, Bram Stoker's Dracula. It's published May 28, 1897 by Archibald Constable and Company. It's a work of fiction, of course, cobbled together from fake journal entries and fabricated news stories. It tells the tale of Count Dracula of Transylvania, who is a very sexy vampire. Mm-hmm. Uh, really woos people. Now, it's important, though, because until this point, there really was no conte- connection between sex and vampires. Vampires were like monsters, you know what I mean? This mm-hmm. is more like something that would come and get you in the middle of the night. And it wasn't, you know, for, uh, you know, good times. 
but at, but after this point, after Bram Stoker's Dracula, they would never be separated. The two things are synonymous now. Whenever you yeah. see uh, vampires in TV movies or written about, there's always this kind of pseudo-sexual, seduction, yeah. exactly, it's perfect, seductive connotation that really wasn't there before. Uh, the Count Dracula in Dracula could do a lot of the stuff we expect modern vampires to do, that is fly, turn into a bat, turn into a wolf and other animals as well, turn into a mist, slept in a coffin filled with dirt from his homeland. He's killed by sunlight, also killed by a wooden stake through the heart. Now in the book, he also had to be beheaded and the head filled with garlic and then buried at a crossroads. But I think for convenience sake, we've dropped that in the modern take. Just the stake will do it, right? Or the sunlight. Sure. But back in the day, it was a little more involved. Yes, uh, Count Dracula was based on two historical figures that were uh, pretty wild. We'll start with Vlad the Impaler. Vlad Dracula was the prince of Wallachia, Romania, three times during his life. Uh, he was born 1428, uh, for, uh, somewhere between 1428 yeah. and 1431. Uh, he would pass somewhere between December of 1476 and January 1477. Uh, you know, record keeping wasn't yeah. really a thing. Yeah. Uh, Dracula is the is the Slavonic genitive form of Dracul, meaning the son of Dracul or the dragon. Uh, Vlad's father was Vlad Dracul. Uh, yeah, why not? Uh, <laughs> known to be extremely brutal, he didn't actually drink blood, but he did invite people to his castle on the pretense of being cordial, you know, before killing them horribly. Yeah, which is a pretty Dracula thing to do, I think. You I know think what so. I mean? You invite them for a nice dinner. And then you would do something mean. For example, once Turkish dignitaries <laughs> came to visit Vlad Dracula, but refused to remove their turbans as per their religious custom. So Vlad had their turbans nailed to their heads, which, of course, killed them pretty much instantly. A little extreme. Uh, he also liked to stick enemies on long spikes outside of his castle so they'd slide down in agony and wail while dying. That's right, they'd be alive. Uh, he mm. had two monks impaled on spikes to assist their ascendance to heaven, as he put it. And he also impaled their donkeys because they were noisy. So I don't, hmm. don't do you think that cut down on the noise? I doubt it. Uh, Probably not. Vlad developed a giant copper cauldron with a lid that had several holes in the top. He'd fill it with water and set it to boil, then put people in the water with their heads through the holes in the lid so he could hear them scream. And this was actually set up in the dining room, and it was considered dinner entertainment. So this was this was a messed up character, and and there is actually mm. the fact that he was prince three times of, uh, of Wallachia. <laughs> isn't it? yeah. It's kind of an interesting story in itself. We're not going to get into because uh, as crazy as all the stuff is, a lot of people did consider him a champion of the people. He was he was doing a lot of this stuff to dignitaries <laughs> and aristocrats, but uh, yeah, pretty brutal, pretty mean dude, I think. I think so. Yeah. A little, little cold-hearted. Mm -hmm. um, now, the other uh, the other character it was based on, or the other person it was based on, is the Countess Elizabeth Bathory. Uh, a closer likeness to the uh, fictional Dracula is Countess Bathory of Hungary, born August seventh, fifteen sixty, died August twenty first, sixteen fourteen. Now, she believes that uh, you can be kept young by bathing in the blood of female virgins, and wouldn't you know it? That's exactly that's what, what she, she did. did. Yeah. <laughs> Now, daughters of peasants would be hired to work as maids in Bathory's castle, then tortured brutally before uh, being bled out into a giant tub. Uh, she would be eventually tried for these crimes and found guilty, 
But because she was royalty, they sort of just locked her away in her castle until she passed of natural causes. Yeah, that's so messed up. Yeah. Her accomplices, however, were beheaded yeah. at the brand new gallows erected for this very occasion. Yeah. Well, so some justice was done to people that didn't actually sure. do the most horrible yeah, They were just things. following orders. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, that's uh, so that, that's really the beginning, I think, of the modern 20th century Dracula. Now we hop into the 20th century and meet the first ever film Dracula that was a fellow named Nosferatu in the movie Nosferatu Ein Symphony des Grauens, translated as Nosferatu, a symphony of horror. It's a 1922 German expressionist silent film directed by F.W. Excuse me, Murnau, starring Max Schreck as the vampire Count Orlock. This movie is actually an adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula, but it deviates significantly, but it is considered to be derived from that book. Uh, Nosferatu, the vampire in that movie, is the visual basis for the Lord of the Undead in Superman Volume 2, number 70. And you see the, the stark difference between, like, the Dracula we know and a tuxedo and a cape and, like, slick back hair, and then the Nosferatu from this book or from the movie is, like, a bald... Yeah, oh, goblinish. Hideous, yeah, goblin, yeah, you know what I mean? It's, fingers, yeah. It really, and, like, the, those two crazy teeth coming out, so, um... That's where that comes from. We said we'd mention it, and we did. He's based on this one movie. A very scary movie, by the way. Uh, there was also Dracula the Play. That was the second adaptation of uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. It's a 1924 stage play by Hamilton Dean, substantially revised in 1927 by John L. Balderston. Uh, this was the first authorized adaptation of the, of the novel Dracula, and my great-grandmother fainted while watching it. Wow. So there's a little personal history. That's all I, that's all I really have for you, but there it is. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, we also have uh, Dracula the Movie. Yeah, it's a uh, 1931 American film directed by Todd Browning and starred Bela Lugosi as Count Dracula. Uh, this version would be based on that play. Uh, director Todd Browning also made another classic period film titled Freaks. Yeah, a uh, film that I love very much. But that's, that's that circus one, right? That's right, uh, where yeah. it's, it's basically footage of actual sideshow freaks uh, that's a pretty, pretty, not a horrible movie, believe it or not. But anyway, I think I saw that on. Uh, it was a Sandra Bernhard show back in the '90s called like Real Wild Cinema. Oh, okay. On on one of those channels, one I think it was like USA. I think it was USA. Something. Yeah, it was yeah. Like that, and then later on it was Up All Night. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. probably you saw it. I I, yep. I love that movie. Anyway, I love <laughs> I love Dracula too. I gotta say. Sure. Uh, the film Bram Stoker's Dracula would come out in 1992 by Francis Ford Coppola and starred Gary Oldman. This is, uh, you know, Commissioner Gordon from Christopher Nolan's Batman films. Yeah. So that uh, everything comes together. And uh, this would follow the original book more closely than the uh, previous. So those are the main ones, but, you know, the, the, big ones, yeah. the number of Dracula movies and vampire movies that we're talking hours of discussion just running off a list. Uh, and the same can be said for vampires in comics. I mean, to list all the media, including or influenced by vampire stories, it could really fill 20 podcasts. Easily. Uh, you know, they're always in style, the blood-sucking vampires, especially since they've turned sexy. Um, <laughs> comics, they were part of comic books from the very, very beginning. The, let's not forget that in Detective Comics number 31, September 1939, Batman fights against the Mad Monk and his Legion of Vampires. And I don't think that was even the first... Uh, instance of vampires that's just one yeah. that leapt to mind as a very early superhero vampire connection uh for this reason 
I'm pretty sure that the cosmic treadmill and vampires will cross paths again. I, I have a feeling it's going to come up. Sneaking suspicion. Yes. And at that time, we may go more in depth about the subject as it pertains to comic books. But for this episode, Chris and I wanted to detail something a little nearer and dearer to our hearts, something we really like, and that's Superman Robin team ups. Yep. Uh, there aren't a ton of them, but whatever it happens, it really is a good time. You know, it's, uh, it's you know, because Robin is that juxtaposition of light to Batman's darkness, but when. He and Superman get together. It's just like fun. They're just, yep. you know, and Superman's always very respectful of Robin. Robin is, you know, there's definitely a mutual respect. There's this mutual respect. Sure. That, and with Batman, you don't get that. He's always, he always treats Robin publicly like a jerk. So, uh, <laughs> always enjoyed it. So, for this subject, for Superman Robin team ups, you could kind of mention nearly every issue of World's Finest in the Silver Age, since those stories always feature Superman and Batman and Robin in one story together. That was how they were, uh, Advertised, uh, but the first appearance of just Superman and Robin teaming up was in World's Finest number seventy-five, March nineteen fifty-five, in the new team of Superman and Robin by Bill Finger and Kurt Swan. Uh, in the story, Batman breaks his leg and must recuperate at the Batcave while Superman and Robin solve crimes. It's kind of even more convoluted than that because Superman and Robin were only pretending that Batman's leg was broken so he wouldn't strain himself because he'd caught a disease. But anyway, you got to read the issue; you find out the whole. Full yeah. story behind it. Now, they came together without having to do Batman in World's Finest number 200. This is uh, covered in February 1971 in Prisoners of the Immortal World by Mike Friedrich and Dick Dillon. Uh, aliens are, that are sapping Superman's powers abduct Dick and two classmates from Hamilton University. Robin frees Superman. It's very nice. Then yeah. uh, Robin visited Superman in his team-up title, DC Comics Presents, in issue number 31, cover date March 1981, in The Deadliest Show on Earth by Jerry Conway, Roy Thomas, and Jose Luis, Luis Garcia Lopez. In this, Robin encounters a circus of mind-controlled performers that includes Superman. And I just bet it gave Robin ample opportunity to use that Carney speak that he, that no one's used in 150 years, but you know it always comes up in the comics. You know we got to get a balderdash to the vum vum or some nonsense. You know. Well, that that one is uh, has been covered on uh, Chris's on Infinite Earth. Oh, so you there you go. That we one can out, go folks. see that. <laughs> now uh, Superman enjoyed that one so much he invited Robin back for DC Comics Presents number 58. This is June of 1983. Uh, this is the Deadly Touch of the Intangibles by Mike Barr and Kurt Swan. Four in intangible bad guys. Tangle with Superman, Robin, and the elongated man in this issue. Yeah, that's an odd team up. I know. I, I love. I, I haven't read this one, I'd love to. Re I did recently Absolutely. get like a whole batch of DC Comics presents, so I need to tuck into some of these great ones. Definitely. Uh, now, in the series Legends of the DC Universe, Robin and Superman teamed up in issue six. This is July 1998. This is Fear of God by Kelly Puckett and Dave Taylor, with a great cover by Christopher Moeller. Uh, this is a retelling retcon of their first meeting. Uh, Superman comes to Gotham City to solve a crime, and uh, Robin is absolutely thrilled to work with him. <laughs> Superman respects Robin mutually and follows his tactics without question. Yeah, sort of establishes their uh, relationship right there. Next was Superman and Dick Grayson would team up again in Nightwing, Volume 2, Number 30, covered April 1999 in Just Passing Through by Chuck Dixon and Scott McDaniel. Superman visits Nightwing in Blue Haven to take down Blockbuster. And then the two would get together in Action Comics, uh, November 2000, Out of Towner, by Chuck Dixon and Pascal Ferry. This time, Nightwing visits Superman in Metropolis to take down Intergang. 
So a little tit for tat right there. That's nice. Uh, in Nightwing, Volume 2, Number 102, March 2005, by Scott Beatty, Chuck Dixon, and Scott McDaniel. It's another retcon retelling of Robin's first meetup. This titled Year One, Chapter Two, Friends in High Places. So it, even though it's a Nightwing book, it's really a Robin story. Yeah. And in it, Batman fires Robin, and he heads over to Metropolis for guidance, only to help Superman take down a mad bomber threatening the city, and then he does get said guidance and support, so that's nice. Sure, and uh, you know, we should mention that uh, Robin took the name, the mantle Nightwing, that's right. as a, uh, because of Nightwing and Flamebird of Candor, which is kind of the Batman and Robin of Candor. Yeah. So Nightwing was kind of a an homage to Superman and Batman, so that's a, a pretty neat uh, bit it, of history tying them together. It is a crazy deep cut. Is it, is it even relevant? Does Candor exist? Who knows? But you know, Who knows? That is where it came from. <laughs> I'm sure somebody put a little jar with a city in it somewhere in a panel. Somewhere in the uh, background, yeah. (laughs) Who knows if it'll ever be referred to. Uh, Now on to more recent comics, uh, Superman and Dick Grayson, Super uh, Super Spy. This is, you know, when he is no longer Nightwing. Mm -hmm. They joined together in Grayson Annual Number 2. This is November 2015. Stories called Just a Guy by Tim Seeley, Tom King, and Alvaro Martinez. Uh, They take down Blockbuster here. Uh, and in Nightwing Volume 3, Number 9, which is very recent, just came out uh, November 2016, stories Rise of the Raptor by uh, Tim Seeley and Javier Fernandez. Uh, Nightwing and Superman team up to save Batman from what will ultimately be the Raptor. Yeah, that's sort of the reveal in that issue of the big bad, I think, uh, that swarms up. And Nightwing is still out now and, you know, whatever sure. else. Uh, you know, it's funny, I couldn't find—I wasn't surprised to see not so many— uh, team-ups with Jason Todd, although I always think of that issue of uh, Superman. I think it's got to be Action Comics for the man who has everything. And mm-hmm. in that one, you know, it's the Black Mercy one and Superman, I mean, Batman, Wonder Woman, and who is at that time a brand-new Robin, Jason Todd, comes. Yeah. And Superman even gives him, like, guiding... A guiding to you know you'll do fine son some something like that you know what I mean he's like a like, nice pat on the back something yeah. Like, yeah he's just like you know you you must be something great if Batman got you here you're you're a pal of mine so even just in that little exchange and you know except for this issue these issues that we read here in uh, this episode of Cosmic Treadmill I couldn't really find a whole or think of a whole lot of times that Superman's been alone with Red Robin I just don't think it's happened he's not that kind of character. No, you I don't know? think so. Red Robin is more of kind of especially since he's been Red Robin he's much more of a loner. Than, yeah, you know, uh, than Dick Grayson ever was. So, uh, but it maybe we're wrong. And as weird as it sounds, it seems like Red Robin is much more of a Batman character than Dick Grayson, who is more of a DC character. It's true. It, you know what I mean? It's and and it's really took this kind of exercise to make me really think about that. But uh, he is like like uh, he's much more serious and like methodical and calculating and much less fly by the seat of your pants kind of character. Yeah, he's less swashbuckling. Um, so it's uh, yeah, it's it was interesting to to do this little exercise and remember all these other times that I had read and some that I now want to read about the uh, two guys. But maybe we missed a couple. Maybe you can remember some that meant something to you, or maybe you want to talk about anything from this episode, vampires, or this issue, Superman number seventy. Whatever you like, Nosferatu, we got it all. You can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash history. On Twitter at CosmicTmill. And I'm personally on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. And especially this week, folks, you definitely got to go check out Chris's and Infinite Earths.com. I'm going to link 
his review to this issue, Superman 70, in the show notes. But what? apparently you've, you've reviewed... Ninety uh, percent of the books we talked about today. So that's <laughs> no, you know, you recently got to up to five hundred. That that blog is rolling along. It's got such great variety. Uh, so you feel like every day there's something I want to read more and more. I wish there was more hours in the day to just sit and pour through it. But uh, gotta recommend it to everybody. You gotta check it out. But uh, we're gonna say thank you again to Eric Shea of the Weird Com Weird Science DC Comics dot com podcast for the recommendation. And uh, I think that's all we got for him this week, Chris. You got anything else for him? Oh, just want to mention that uh, there is a Superman-Robin team-up in somewhere in the animated series from the 90s. That's right. So there if you, if you want to track that Drake. down. There, that was a Tim Drake. Uh, I don't know if I it believe. was. Uh, maybe not. But yeah, there, not there was sure. an episode where they teamed up. And that uh, I, was, I thought about referencing it, and I was like, eh, it's not a comic. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's that And I think it actually happened there And I think there's a little interaction Even during Justice League Unlimited possibly But um, I, I wouldn't doubt that Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, we love to see those two together And hopefully we'll see more Kind of a different dynamic now with Damian Wayne But eh, we can still make it work That's going to be interesting Yeah, yeah that'll happen eventually <laughs> But uh, if that's all we got for him this week, Chris Then I think we better tell him to keep it on the treadmill Vampirically See ya. It's all gotta be real, real. No, not a dream, a dream. It's 